Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And welcome to Wednesday the 22nd. Uh, You're in studio here with Eidwin. And Rob. And I said in studio again, I shouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> creates this very <laughs> odd illusion. I'm sitting here rugged up to the nines. This has been a very cold start to the week. Uh, I don't know about you, Rob. How are you going over in your suburbs? It's, it's cold. I um, Yeah, I don't know how I've been coping with it really beyond that. Although I think because it's been so cold, I have been eating way too much peanut butter. And <laughs> it's... <laughs> starting to show but um i went for a nice on the weekend i went for a nice digital walk because mm-hmm. my my sister lives in a different lga so we couldn't walk together so we thought well let's walk digitally and, and talk and, and and walk which is quite nice but then we got to the point so i like left the house and i'm thinking oh do i go do i go left or right and she's like oh i went right so i was like okay well i'll go right too and just kind of like follow through that through the hole and walk straight walk. into a wall <laughs> <laughs> I had um my first like movie watch party with my friends, which was very interesting, except for the fact that we were using Netflix as our application of choice. And that meant that one of the friends had like access to pause it and would pause it because we were watching, of course, the cringiest movie we could find, um, had the ability to like pause it every three seconds and just scream at just how terrible it was. <laughs> So we're uh, thinking of removing her control ability. <laughs> I people talking in films, it bugs me so much. I remember this time I was watching Samsara, which mm-hmm. is I don't know if you've seen the film. It's this amazing film that kind of just captures like the world at that point in time. Mm. And they went to twenty five countries over five years. And like the, there's not any uh dialogue, it's just these amazing images and sort of music that complements that. And I just had these people next to me in the cinema whispering the entire time. And I'm like, yes, I get that there's no dialogue, but that doesn't mean you can't be quiet. And it just completely ruined the mood. And so I had to go see it again the next day because I was just so angry. You're so shaken up. See, we kind of did the opposite of it. I mean, I respect not talking during actual decent films, but um, my the, oh, we had a great time. My friends and I, when the cinemas were open, went in with like um, rom-com bingo which is basically we just put down all the things you see in those terrible B-grade rom-coms, you know, <laughs> like the bad boy has a leather jacket and he speaks with an English accent or, or my, <laughs> my favourite one, slightly abusive, you know, slightly abusive relationships are somehow sexy and like those sorts of just really problematic, like, ooh, American teen, you know, romance films. Yeah. And we will pissing ourselves because within the first like 30 minutes we'd got bingo with just like, <laughs> all the tropes and it was just us just ticking them off so i have to say unfortunately in that case i was i was the um the horrible person chit-chatting away well, i mean I, the one exception for me is the room i think that's a room that's, that's oh. a film where you definitely definitely talk and throw spoons mm. i think that, all that fun stuff. i the room like 
we were the, it was like five of us watching it. I think all of us beat our head against the wall at like some point within that film. That film is a pain. It's, it's almost a film where you need to talk in order to get through it. I think that's that's more the nature of it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what have we got coming up on the show today? Well, it's got this is going to be a bit of a different show. We've got a bit of a mix up happening. We've got a, a little bit of other three CR content, which I'm very excited to listen to. Um, Rob, do you have yeah. those listed down there? Yeah, so first up, we'll be having a interview from City Limits. So that's the, the awesome urbanism show that 3CR puts on. And it's with Dr. Sam Leiblick, who's a psychiatrist who was working with public housing tenants. And so he'll be speaking as a representative from Friends of Public Housing. What have you got coming up, Ipwin? Yeah, and this is quite exciting. The interview that we'll be having today, which is kind of more, I suppose, this week, you know, uh, uh, sort of focused is actually an update on a story we've been following since July last year. And believe it or not, the first interview we ever had with these guys was actually the 17th, uh, 2019. So it was actually the day I was writing this interview was, um, <laughs> it was like a nice little anniversary. Anywho, uh, that will be an exciting update uh, from the community group, King Lake friends of the forest who have been doing a huge amount of protest and activism around the logging of certain forest areas up in King Lake, which is North of Nam. And it's quite an exciting update because they've recently had an interlocutory injunction um, served up by the courts in Victoria, which means that uh, logging has been postponed or stopped temporarily whilst the court continues to um, file through the case that King Lake has submitted. So quite exciting. We'll be getting the update from Sue, who we've spoken to before. And do you know why um, they've been able to have that that, that granted permission for the now, logging not to we believe so. So what happened is King Lake Friends of the Forest have actually launched a legal action against Vic Forest and like, you know, um, the state kind of thing against this logging because a lot of the logging happening up in uh, King Lake is arguably illegal. So right. that's part of that movement. But what really, I suppose, sets the precedent in this case is the fact that last month, the federal court delivered a ruling that showed that Vic Forest and by extension, the Victorian government uh, were actually illegally logging up in Victoria's highlands, so breaching in, um, state laws around environmental protections and stuff like that. And since that federal court ruling, there's been a bit more of a precedent set for these sorts of cases. And so Kinglake uh, Friends of the Forest are actually quite excited about the potential of winning this case and halting logging. Um, so far, our last interview we had a couple of weeks ago pointed out that after the federal court ruling, we saw the halting of logging in seven different uh, logging coops across Victoria. Mm -hmm. To give you an idea of size, that's seven out of 66. So there's still a long way to go, but it's, it's exciting to see that there's some traction happening in this area. And incremental change as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that'll be our show. It's kind of got a nice mix of issues that we've been covering over the past few weeks. And I just wanted to also mention that there'll be an action happening tonight online. This is being held by the Tomorrow Movement, which is a youth group dedicated towards um, youth justice issues, social justice and community issues. They're an offshoot of young campaigns, which we've had on before to talk about. They, are, they, they were a group dedicated towards youth economic justice. So the Tomorrow Movement is kind of a bigger conglomeration, a little bit more generalized, a whole range of social justice issues. And they'll be having like a organizational welcome tonight. So you can head to the Tomorrow Movement their website or Facebook or anywhere else to register and hop online for the public Zoom meeting, which will introduce the organization better than I can and also uh, bring up some upcoming training sessions and things like that. So very exciting. Yeah, great. And now we're going to jump into alternative news and then we'll continue with the rest of the show. Some folks know about it, some don't. 
listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and jumping into some alternative news for this week. So in South Africa, campaigners have recently welcomed a court ruling that will now make it much harder for police to raid poor city dwellers' homes. So this has been following a series of protests regarding operations to enforce the coronavirus lockdown in South Africa. So following a series of raids, often many quite violent on properties illegally gained by landlords, which were then rented to low-income tenants. The Johannesburg High Court has now effectively banned home ratings without a proper warrant. And so for many, this will bring a greater sense of security to their living environments, particularly during the lockdown where residents are required to shelter within their homes. Formally, the the court said that the police raids had been carried out in a manner that was sort of quite cruel, humiliating, degrading and invasive. And so many of these residents are living in these, they call them hijacked buildings, which are, they're low paid workers, but they're looking for affordable housing. And there's estimates that there's over 14,000, sorry, 1,470 of these buildings across South Africa. And in recent weeks, rights activists had been arguing that the police were using techniques that were too heavy-handed to, and they're doing so to enforce lockdown measures in areas where overcrowding had made isolation quite difficult and distancing very challenging. Uh, My second story this week is from a recent report from the UN that has found that at least $10 billion worth of gold, platinum and other precious metals are being dumped annually in a highly unsustainable way. And so this waste is due to a growing amount of e-waste, which is very much a serious and unchecked side effect from our addiction to technology. So last year, the world produced... 54 million tonnes of e-waste. And this is an increase of 21% from five years ago, which is really 
illustrating the increasing uptake of electronics globally. Um, and in fact, we're actually, the amount of e-waste that is being produced is rising three times faster than the world's population. Now, the kind of worrying effect of this is, as well as there being an increase in e-waste, only on average about 17% is being recycled. And that was from 2019. And so the UN's findings, which is in this report called the Global E-Waste Monitor Report, has been arguing that a lack of regulation, a short product lifespan, and devices that are now difficult to repair are some of the key factors that are really resulting in this rapid increase in e-waste. Mm. In terms of the sort of geographical spread across the world, Northern Europe has the highest amount of e-waste on average, totaling about 22.4 kilograms per person. And the thing to also remember, this isn't just sort of phones and laptops and those kinds of electronics. It includes things like kettles, toasters, a lot of household electronics as well, which I think is where a lot of it is really coming from. Um, so while Northern Europe was the highest, Australia was also worryingly quite close behind. So Australia and New Zealand's were about 21.3 kilograms of e-waste per person. Now, in terms of trying to address the issue head on, there is obviously a need for a stronger collection system in how these e-waste uh, products are collected and not going into the general waste stream. However, at the same time, improper e-waste recycling is a really significant emerging hazard. So currently, about one in four childhood deaths globally result from pollution and this includes e-waste within that. And so as a result, there's kind of this moment of we don't have the proper system set up, but this is also a prime time to ensure that the systems that are set up are sort of have the proper health processes established in place. So it's an interesting kind of uh, sl problem, slow problem that is emerging, mm -hmm. but it is frustrating because I've definitely felt, and I'm sure you have the same as well, Iwin, like I've been trying to hold on to my phone as long as I can, but then you reach a stage where there are no longer updates. So then that becomes a security risk for your data and you're more or less forced into, into getting a new product or a new phone or, or whatever it is. And it's kind of, you come, the responsibility and the decision comes down to you of, do you want to hold on to as long as you can to, to reduce environmental waste? at the sacrifice of your data on your privacy. Mm, mm. And that's a really it's, difficult decision. Absolutely. And I mean, also what does make that decision any easier is the fact that, you know, we do know that there's such thing as planned obsolescence, that mm. your, your, your phone has a lifespan and that is slightly tied to marketing and invention of, you know, the next Apple iPhone X, you know, 200 <laughs> or up to. Um, so it, it's really difficult because our phones are made to only last, you know, what, two to three years and then kind of fizzle out the battery goes or or you know functions stop working or like th these things are not made to last and they're not made either to be repaired well so you kind of you get in this fiddly position well the thing that annoys me is that so my last phone i i tried to hold on to as long as i could so i replaced the battery about two years in which is about the time when it runs out of juice like you have to replace it mm. recycled it as safely as i could um, but then there's, yes, yeah, like as, as, much, as well as there's the, the physical planned obsolescence, there's also the, the digital planned obsolescence without saying like the software that now because yeah. you're three years old, it no longer gets updates. And so, I mean, supposedly what's been happening with, with what I've read in technology is that products are being able to last longer or you can replace certain bits, which is great. But then when you have this digital planned obsolescence, it kind of counters mm. all of that. Makes it a bit and redundant. That, that, it comes completely redundant. So you could have a functional machine, but just because it doesn't have the right software and the security attached with that, then it renders it useless, which is just frustrating because you've got something yeah. that works. 
Totally. And I mean, I know myself and I know a lot of other friends like have the shameful drawer of like old technologies mm. and like, oh, like, oh, like that laptop that you had throughout, you know, school and high school and it's now completely dead and you don't want to get rid of it because you're not sure where to get rid of it responsibly. Or even if you yeah. do get rid of it responsibly, as you've said, like so little of it is really recycled. So, I mean, the only thing I can look forward, the only thing I'm looking forward to is the fact that, you know, because we are moving, Victoria has been suggesting or tiptoeing around the idea of recycling Victoria, that maybe e-waste comes into that. Cause you know, you bring it up as a news story and it is something that is deeply worrying and kind of like one of those background issues. It's just going to get more and more uh, problematic. Yeah. What's interesting. You've raised that point of that sort of the, the shameful draw, <laughs> shameful draw. Cause I had, I'd be, I had been carrying around every single phone that I've owned up mm. until last year where I thought, okay, I'm actually going to properly recycle these. And I had to go to six different shops, I think, to find one that would accept it. I went through the websites that say, you know, these mm. are the shops nearby to you that accept products, that accept phones to be recycled. And I had to go to six different shops because everyone that I went to said, oh, no, we don't do it. You've got to go to this shop. And then I went to that shop and they said, oh, no, 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 we don't do it. You've got to go to this shop. Mm. And it became this kind of wild goose chase to try and find a shop that would actually accept my phone. So I'm thinking for the layperson who doesn't have the commitment and the time to go to six shops. How do you do? Yeah, yeah. You're persistent in having the luxury of time. I was able to do that. But for people mm. who don't have those time and luxuries, it's, it's incredibly challenging. So I just thought oh, that was a really interesting exercise. Um, slightly worrying. Absolutely. Very worrying, very worrying. And it's like, it's interesting as well, just adding on to that, like government rhetoric is kind of like, oh, recycle your phone, put them in the drop-off points. And then looking at like more like your drop-off points or maybe your, your commercial market, it's just completely different messages and completely different levels of accessibility. So the government's pushing for this like recycle culture, which hasn't got a, got enough, as you said, infrastructure to actually support it to be successful. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, yeah. hopefully Tricky. raising awareness of this will lead to some more significant changes from this report. So we'll see. Um, but you're listening to 3CR Wednesday breakfast. We're going to jump into some community servants announcements and some music. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you yours. to all What's of you for What's giving us the opportunity to morning. speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. 
You're listening to 3CR, it's Wednesday Breakfast, and we're now going to jump into some City Limits content. This was an interview uh, last week presented by Meg, Kevin and Howard from the show, City Limits, which, as we know, plays nine after uh, nine o'clock on a Wednesday. And it's an interview with Dr. Sam Leibach, a psychiatrist working with public housing tenants. It's worth mentioning that City Limits interviewed Sam on this issue on the request of Friends of Public Housing, uh, partially because they wanted to give a bit of a break to tenants from media requests. That's not to detract anything from what what Dr. Sam has to say, and he brings his own fabulous expertise in psych support program. So we'll jump into the interview now with Meg introducing Howard and Sam from Friends of Public Housing. Yeah, so Howard is joining us, obviously, and also with him is Dr. Sam Leiblich, who uh, is a doctor who's been associated with some of the stuff that's been happening at the housing estates. So thank you to you both for joining us. Thanks, Meg. Yeah, thanks for having us. Did you want to start, Howard? I think we'll kick off with Sam, actually. So, Sam, do you want to give us a bit of background about your work and qualifications? Uh, yeah, sure. So, I'm a psychiatrist. I've worked in the inner city for the last 10 or so years and with um, patients in first at the Melbourne Assessment Prison on Spencer Street and then after that with um, homeless people and people in public housing through two teams at the Northwestern Mental Health. One is called City Team 1A. The other one is 
a very interesting team called the Homeless Outreach Mental Health Service, which is run on a housing first policy, which essentially means that uh, it takes in homeless patients. And then the very first thing it does, the main priority is get them a house. All our concerns are sort of um, made subservient to that because we know that the very best treatment for anybody who's got housing stress is to eliminate the housing stress. And so by that, I mean not just getting homeless people a house, but also allowing people who are in public housing to not feel infinitely precarious and like there's always uh, the threat of summary eviction or around the corner or because the facilities they're provided with are inadequate, that they feel that they're only somewhat in a home and that sort of thing. So that's um, that's my background. I also live one block from the North Melbourne Towers. I'm on Canning Street, so I'm, I can see 76 Canning from my place. And so that's why when this new crisis started, I went down there and got more involved. I'm not working with either of those teams at the moment. I'm doing my PhD at the University of Melbourne and teaching at Royal Melbourne Hospital but only doing a little bit of clinical work. But I, I went down there to try and volunteer my psychiatric expertise. But then also, as I just said, the bigger issue within the psychiatric problems that come up in public housing are just the housing issues anyway. So I wanted to help feed people and make sure that they felt supported by the community. Were you allowed in? Uh, not allowed into the towers, no. But I was around the towers, and then I was mostly working with the, and still am, with the Australian Muslim Social Services Association, mm-hmm. and they were in contact with rep- representatives in each of the towers, and they were getting them food. And um, my uh, partner and I did a big food drive and uh, managed to collect tons of groceries and material items that added um, to their already massive effort. I mean, they're the real heroes of this crisis, the way that they organised so quickly and they managed to marshal such a huge community Mm. effort at the Muslim Social Services Association. Um, I mean, they were supporting people in a lot of different ways with material donations, but then also, for instance, I was aware that there were some local pharmacies who couldn't get medicines into the towers just for their usual patients, just the people they usually see. They've got a routine with them where they provide them with daily, weekly or monthly prescriptions. And they they said to me, oh, we can't get things into the towers and nobody's told us anything. DHHS hadn't told them anything. They hadn't made any provisions for those medicines getting into the towers. And so I put them in contact with the Muslim Social Services Association and they managed to get things into the towers until eventually DHHS did start making um, provisions for that sort of thing, which was many days into lockdown. Mm. The Muslim Social Services Association has definitely been, there's been a, a lot of information and especially on social media and, and elsewhere about the huge effort that they made to coordinate resources, including translating information into the languages that the people uh, speak in the uh, housing estates. Uh, and mm. the the thing that I had observed as well from watching this was that there seemed to be a real challenge in um, actually getting those resources into residents because of the presence of police. Yeah. I mean, let's call them AMSA now, just mm. for short. The Muslims, the AMSA, they were, they've um, encountered roadblocks from police, from firefighters and from DHHS at almost every turn but they still managed to organize this really cohesive, really impressive response. And, you know, they had a car park and a warehouse just full of food and they were packing and sorting groceries for every 
for every resident in the towers and they, they had sort of a human conveyor belt to the bottom of the towers and then at the tower a representative was coming out and getting it so there was no cross-contamination into the towers and it was all really well organised but still DHHS were saying, oh, this is, there's a risk of cross-contamination and they, they were putting up impediments all over the place really just because they were embarrassed that a community organisation and an ad hoc coalition of community members and other organizations was able to do a much better job than they were but you know really i think the economy is there that dhhs wasn't trying to do a good job they're they're not that they were shown up by amsa but their role is not to do a good job their role at least implicitly is to degrade public housing to neglect the residents of public housing so that you know they can contribute to the decades-long tradition of doing precisely that to public housing Uh, on the way to it all being privatised and the disadvantaged and the marginalised being moved out of the city or made homeless and all of us being made to feel as if we're walking a knife's edge and that if we make one misstep, we can end up in the meat grinder. And that's, you know, that's precisely why a psychiatrist ends up involved in housing defence in the first place is because I kept being asked to treat people with medicines when what they needed was a house to be made to feel secure and and to be respected. Sam, on that point, we've talked earlier in the program about this being a stigmatisation of public housing because they'd never do it anywhere else, would they? Mm. On an over-broad level, what sort of impact does this have on the people in those communities when this sort of thing happens? Yeah, well, that's right. That, there's a, the stigmatisation of public housing is very is a very concerted effort, really. And the the effect that this has is sort of twofold. It, it intensifies what's usually happening, and then it also adds that extra bit of powerlessness. I mean, how they usually feel, you know, is marginalised, neglected. They're sort of derided as living on handouts. They're afraid of being arbitrarily kicked out for any number of sort of Kafkaesque reasons. Uh, if they speak out, they can be evicted. If they have too many people in, you know, they try to extend help and to their family, they can be evicted. They're really treated like children who can't be given things to, to you know, use on their own, essentially. And they're made to feel like uh, parasites by the media and by, you know, other strong voices. But that's, of course, to obscure the fact that the real parasites are the developers and the banks who want to swoop in on that public land, who want to have a monopoly on dwellings and who, like I say, want to make sure that we all feel precarious so that we have to work and we have to work for a pittance. Um, and then how they feel now is, you know, people came home from work, shut the door, and then went back out to go and get something from Woolies and found out that they weren't allowed out of their home. They had no warning. They had no idea. So it's just another sort of feeling of insecurity, of precarity, where they feel powerless They are literally imprisoned suddenly and without explanation. Uh, And then also they're locked into these dwellings that are not fit for purpose. They're small places that have been overburdened with people. There are some families who can only make use of the space by rotating sleeping arrangements. And, And also, I mean, no family is really designed to be imprisoned together. Families really, I mean, this just as a general psychiatric point, I guess, Families don't operate on being locked in a room all at the same time. And so uh, the family unit is made to do something it's also not designed to do. Mm. So all of that leads to all of the various stresses you can imagine. But then as um, my friend, the psychologist in Kensington, David Ferraro says, every depression is a failed revolution. And 
this feeling like not only are things not going to get better, but at any moment, it's going to get worse. And if anything impacts this, the community of Melbourne as a whole, it's going to impact the tower residents the most. And that's exactly how they're going to, you know, they're going to be feeling. They feel like second like class citizens who are going to bear the brunt of every problem. And so, I, you know, I imagine there's a lot of depression that's going to come out of that. Mm. Sam, so what, what did you think about the justification for lockdown in terms of clusters? So the, the government's saying there was a cluster of infections yeah. in the tower that wasn't present. So how, how would you, as a doctor, how would you respond to that? Well, so I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, I mean, what we do know is that there are 53, there was, a, there was a very high density of cases in 33 alpha but they didn't know that before they did this blanket testing. They obviously had some signal that suggested some spike in the area, but because there were zero cases in eight of the nine towers, their application of that information was already clearly erroneous. The other thing that proves that it was not purely an objective epidemiological decision is the fact that Arden Gardens is a private tower directly across the road from 76 Canning. It has similar density to the public towers. It shares many of the same facilities. There are at least three laundromats on Melrose Street that are used by both Arden Gardens residents and residents of the public towers. There's a Woolworths, there's an IGA, there are two cafes, there are hairdressers. All those facilities are used by the Arden Gardens people and people in the public towers. And yet Arden Gardens wasn't locked down. My house didn't have a police officer outside it, even though I'm only a block from there and I use all those same facilities also. So epidemiologically, Arden Gardens and the public towers are a single unit. I can't see one can always be corrected, but I can't see any justification for them being treated differently other than classism. Yeah. And what about the racism aspect? We know that the um, AMSA, the Muslim Association, has been active. Mm. What's the racial or ethnic composition of the towers? I actually don't, I don't know the full numbers, except anecdotally, because I've worked around there a lot. There's a lot of people from Africa. There are a lot of people of the Muslim faith and uh, there are a lot of Vietnamese people also. I should, I should mention as well that AMSA did a really brilliant effort providing for all peoples. They weren't only providing for people of the Muslim faith and they put a lot of effort into translating material into Vietnamese as well, things like that. But I don't know. I don't know that it is primarily an issue of racism. I think race is used as a dog whistle for classism in this instance. But like a, the example I just used of Arden Gardens, there are a lot of people in there who are new to Australia and who are from many of the same places that the people of the public towers are from. The only difference is that they've invested in private dwellings and, you know, and are good little boys and girls, according to uh, the capitalist mode of production, whereas the people in the public towers, uh, in inverted commas, should be grateful, um, are living on handouts and, uh, you know, supposedly budgets. And when you and I know that none of that's true. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the show. and We're going to have to wind up. We could talk about this longer, but we're going to have to um, stick to our one hour. Uh, we've had a very full show. Really appreciate your input as well, Sam. And, and before we finish up, Howard, did you have anything you wanted to comment in terms of defending and extending public housing and, and what we've seen in this instance? Well, I'll just mention that uh, not so much the public housing advocacy groups, but the um, Stand Together Against Racism has done some, some work. They've had uh, 
some uh, a webinar and they've gotten a number of the um, residents involved talking about it. And it's also um, appeared on the uh, internet, Voices from the Block. So it looks like the, the residents themselves have been organising to advocate via the internet as well. So uh, from all the reports, the residents on Inner Towers are actually uh, do have a very strong community, as we know, and they're also quite able to represent themselves obviously through through AMSA, but, but independently as well. So good networks and um, good uh, self-defence. And that was Meg and Kevin interviewing Howard and Dr Sam Leibach from the Friends of the Public Housing Community. Next up, we're going to be listening to a few community service announcements and then we'll get into tram thoughts for the week. So, here you are, too foreign for home. Too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Don't look too close tonight. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. These times are strange, like now we've known, all locked inside, at home, alone. Video connected close-ups, unlike meetings of the past, we used to call them catch-ups. Beer and wine, by the glass. And it's not every day you want to paint or draw, but every time you do it, your outlet lets out more. And if you didn't do that, document the here, interpret the now, in a hundred years, how do you prove you were around? These times are strange. I walk towards them. I stumble on my old thinking cap. Huh. I always assumed it was lost at sea, and all the while it was hiding. Second drawer down behind my 30-year-old socks. I wonder if it still fits. I wonder if things will ever get back to normal, but then again, were things ever really normal? Times are strange. After the passing of the first deluge of decrees that seem to, for the betterment of all, steal away our freedom, I find the isolation from the busy world somewhat comforting and prepare with mild trepidation for freedom's return. The lonely camaraderie. My mind charges ever forward, like a shark. It's harder to brush my sharp teeth these days. The now empty bins sway in the wind and I look forward past the long grass and peeling fences. This is the sunset. Drive me into it. 
And that was the collective poems, These Times Are Strange, created by independent writers collective, The Penny Mint. You can find their beautiful poem collections along with other writings on their Instagram at The Penny Mint or on our rundown today, which will include a link to their website. As you can guess, this Tram Thoughts is going to be about poetry. (sighs) How's the quote go? I think it's, if you've ever thought of something, chances are someone somewhere has written a poem about it. And in this melancholy state of lockdown that we all find ourselves in, I started to think about poetry. Big mistake. Poetry has some weird and wonderful ability to connect and to also get a little bit too introspective sometimes. But I wanted to look into it this ability to connect perhaps deeper than other forms of prose and literature and take a little bit of time to think about what makes this art form so special or perhaps unique. So starting off, Rob, is there a favorite poem that you have? So I don't know if this is breaking the rules, but I'm Mm. going to suggest anyway. So there's, I have two points to add to this. The first point is there is an artist as a musician who I would almost say her writing, her songs are more like poems with music because mm. the her name's Joanna Newsom and she creates these beautiful sort of seven, eight minute songs where it just flows through different verses and prose. And it's just some of the most delightful language I have come across. And I find it really, like, it has, the, I don't know, the same kind of effect as poetry. Like, it's, it's almost like spoken poetry with music and harps and all this other kind of background to it. Um, and I love to just listen to it and listen to the imagination in the words mm-hmm. and the way it's crafted. So I would actually say her general work would be some of my my favourite sort of quote-unquote poems. But the other point I was going to add is that I also just really love spoken word and poetry slams not any poem in particular but just the medium itself and the expressions that it brings out in people and the stories as well so I don't have a a particular poem I mean I studied Robert Frost in school so I know his poems pretty intimately well but I would say I actually prefer Joanna Newsom and her her lyrics. Joanna Newsom well I mean you bring up some interesting things and this is something that I want to dive into today first off what is poetry as a definition? And second off, where do you draw the line between art forms and prose and, uh, yeah, the written word? So I wanted to start off with maybe like a little bit of a history of poetry to kind of give us a foundation to figuring out what this art form might be. So poetry as an art form actually predates the written text, and some have called it like the triumph of literature. The earliest poem is actually believed to be recited or sung and employed as a way of mainly remembering oral history, genealogy, or law. So you can think of, for example, uh, in England, you have the the histories of the Druids who would have rocks placed on their chests and would have to learn and recite these poems, basically sometimes against their will in order to like keep the history (laughs) going. Um, We may also think of like the first big poems that we, we we think of as the, the, the foundational poems, something like Beowulf. But interestingly enough, the oldest surviving, surviving speculative fiction poem is actually the tale of the shipwrecked sailor written around about 2500 BCE, but in ancient Egypt. We also have things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, and I think these are ones that we've often heard, but it's important to recognize or remember that poetry actually pops up in every single walk of life in every single culture. Again, it's not just necessarily something that we it is important for entertainment. That's potentially how we see it more so now, um, you know, in a more kind of 
modern context, poetry used to be something that was like foundational to law and justices and carrying out culture. For example, in Africa, poetry actually has a history dating back to prehistorical times in the creation of hunting poetry and elegic court poetry. And it was quite important for things like theatre and stuff like that, but also for different cultural you know, coming of age rituals and, and different sorts of things. The Epic of Sandita is actually one of the most well-known examples of poetry from the West of Africa. And these are like, these are ancient texts. Poems can also convey things like histories, fables. I mean, they also have a wide range. Uh, India's Sanskrit is best known perhaps for its erotic love poems and the wisdom around sensuality and knowledge and things like that. And it kind of brings me into all these these different these different versions of poetry. I mean, Rob, you've just uh, talked about spoken word poetry, and I suppose when you do think about poetry or when you interact with poetry in your daily life, what do you think you're you're mainly experiencing? Is it is it you know is it perhaps more of this like historical or cultural poetry, or is it more like entertainment based? Um, I mean, part of me does say entertainment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, I guess there's a question of, I mean, this is a really interesting point about art generally. Is it for entertainment's sake or is it for another purpose? And uh, there, there's, a, there's discussions on both sides of that. I guess I feel I enjoy the entertainment side of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's entertaining. It just, it's thought-provoking. Mm. Um, and I think that does come through slam poetry and the thing I, what I really appreciate about that is the the barrier to entry is so low and it's okay if your, your prose is a little bit off or your things don't quite rhyme or it, it's more about the, the way you present it. And what I find quite interesting is that if I, prior to you describing that, I wouldn't have necessarily, it could have not been described as pure poetry because I mean, one interpretation of poetry is that it's someone else's words, but then you're hearing it in your own voice in your head. And that is Mm -hmm. part of the medium of poetry. But then as you're saying before about how it really originated from a spoken word origin kind of, I guess, twist that a little bit about the actual, what is the original quote unquote original poetry. Mm. Um, Well, I mean, touching up on some of those things, I think it's it's quite interesting that you said that uh, this idea of accessibility, because when we think about poetry, we often think about, you know, the lofty intellectuals. And poetry has always been one of those really interesting things where it was not necessarily a medium which was as institutionalized as something like painting or, you know, the, the written word when it first came out. At the same time, poetry has always has been something that's, you know, often been tied to the more intellectual class because you obviously have the time and freedom to sit down and have a think. Then again, when we bring up something like spoken word, yes, it does serve an entertainment purpose, but then again, often it is serving uh, a protest you know, or, or clashing cultures. And I think it's really interesting that we see throughout history that poetry moves away potentially from or, or swings between maybe more institutionalized purposes, such as, you know, as we said, like lessons um, passed down through generations to instead something that's like rebelling or pushing something or an emerging sort of idea. And it's definitely something we see, again, if you, if you talk about something like slam poetry, we see the rise of like the free, of free verse which is the bane of a lot of literature nerds' existences because it doesn't follow something like rhymed poetry or even blank verse of, you know, what we think of as Shakespeare. It really is, uh, it it rebels against the idea of the intellectual class and really doesn't want to be bound by any rules regarding rhyme or meter. 
And I think it's really one of those interesting poetry forms because it's, when it's done really well, it can be fantastic. And when it's done really bad or when it's done not well, it can be really, really shocking. So it's really interesting, that sort of thing. I think also bringing in that idea of uh, like how we interact with it often. I think a lot of the things uh, school classes are missing because at the moment you know we're still taught the Shakespearean texts and Macbeth and to be or not to be but I think where most of us are engaging with poetry at the moment is through rap and is through a lot of spoken word music and I'm wondering if that could be a new way of looking at issues and maybe maybe rap should become some of the poetic texts that we look at what's your thoughts on that I guess it's thinking about what is the purpose of poetry? Like what is the, the your origin and, and neat reason for it? And I, I guess in my sort of uninformed and I'm not, I'm no, by no means a poetry expert of any, mm. any kind, but I guess it is about either expressing your own experiences or a perceived experience or a sort of, it's like a thought. It's a single thought captured in a few lines, essentially. And if that can be communicated in another way, I guess that is really just an evolution of the medium. And this actually draws me to my next question, which I was supposing, like, what do you think poetry is? I mean, we've, there, there's some quotes I have here. Robert Frost, as you mentioned, said that poetry is when emotion has found its thought and the thought has found words. Mm-hmm. Another person I quite liked was poetry is an echo asking a shadow to dance, which is, extraordinarily you you know it was written by a poet and then I also found and I thought this was quite interesting Oscar Wilde was noted for saying a poet can survive everything but a misprint which says more about the poet than it does about poetry but I thought it had a rather interesting point that it's all about the words you use and if it's so then detail orientated what exactly is it a conscious putting a stitching together of words and meanings what what would would you be able to think of a your definition of it yeah well i guess it brings back to a discussion i remember having in school people saying oh a poet is sort of it's only five lines how can they you know how easy is that Mm. and it's really interesting because i work in a design industry and everything you produce is very physical and you can see the outcome and the common expression, well, not always common, but often said is, oh, I could have designed that because it's a physical thing. You can see the physical output as opposed to something that's conceptually more complex. And so I feel like with poetry, that sense of craft, like, yes, it might only be a 50 words poem, but the precise use of those 50 words is definitely part of the art. Mm -hmm. And so I can see why in relation to free verse, there is a sort of (laughs) <laughs> bit of a stigma uh, yeah, frustration because it is about the choice of the 50 words or whatever mm. it might be but that's not to say of course that free verse can't have that same level of, of thought and craft i think you're right this it's a deliberate choice of words and uh the welsh poet dylan thomas is actually known for saying you know if you're not struggling to come up with a sentence after three you know years <laughs> what mm. are you doing um and he was known for, to write like to, t- to take works that he'd written at 16 and rework them for a period of nine years until he'd perfected them. A website I was looking at had a few interesting points. It pointed out that a poem cannot be paraphrased and a poem's greatest potential or quality lies in this idea of ambiguity. So it is the mixed uh, collection of meanings that 
you might might take you multiple readings to kind of to appear but it's that that process of unpacking all these different layers and influences and things like that i guess is it something then built for discussion is it implied that because of the level of interpretation and possible interpretations, it's, it's not supposed to be a solo activity? This is something that I think is absolutely true of poetry because one of the biggest points about it is because poetry is supposed to have a pentameter. It's supposed to be not necessarily lyrical, but it's supposed to have a sort of flow to it. It is an, ultimately a, a verbal art. It is something that is supposed to be listened to and heard. And if you look at like, you know, poetry throughout history, it's actually something that is often, is, is majoritively something that's done for a communal community purpose. Whereas when we think of poetry, we often think of, you know, sitting, reading a book in your little nook, you know? It's very individual. It's very individual. So it's this interesting idea that I think poetry, what it is, is it, it's, it's, um, it is, it's, it's kind of like a play in the fact that it has to be read out loud and it has to be not even just read verbatim, but expressed imbued with meaning to to kind of be a poem if that makes sense Mm -hmm. the other argument i came across which was interesting is this idea of the accessible versus obscure poems the idea of well is good poetry defined by how accessible it is or is is good poetry hard and should be hard and should be something that you have to unpack and work at to get i think there's there's value in both Mm -hmm. of those those points um i obviously very strongly advocate for accessibility um, and particularly who writes as well to share different thoughts or different essences of ideas and craft Mm. those into word form. But um, I think the complexity is, is, as you say, the the thing that sort of defines poetry is ambiguity um, and how it can be read through time. Like one of the classic kind of misreadings of a poem is the uh, path, the Robert Frost path diversion in the woods yeah. Can't remember the exact title. Right. Um, and it's often interpreted as this idea of, oh, we'll choose the path that's more meaningful to you when really it's just saying, mm. actually, it could be even a, a satirical view of that um, opinion and expressing the, just the fact that every every decision you make, there's always going to be another decision that you, you wish you'd taken. And so I guess that ambiguity leads to more discussion. I think as we're saying, like it is a group activity and I think you need the level of ambiguity to some degree in order to create something that makes people think as opposed to just listen. I think that that really is a trick. And recently my family and I actually tried a poetry night where we took a whole bunch of poetry from different eras and sat down and we'd pick a poem and read them each and have a little bit of a discussion about them afterwards. And I think it reaches this point where it's like, even if you have the most accessible of poetry or, or the best of poetry, everyone struggles with poetry. It's not something that immediately is easy or, or understandable, you know, Again, if it's easy, it's not a good poem. Exactly. Exactly. So you got like a lot of these pictures again of lofty individuals, you know, understanding and weeping at poetry, but that's just not the case. People struggle with it. Um, and it, it takes years to break it down. So in that vein, I thought we'd look up maybe some tips and tricks to understanding poetry and potentially having some of these discussions during lockdown. Mm. So the, the first one I came across was the fact that context is critical to poets and the development of the poetic gen- genres and forms. So this might be something next time you read a poem or you're discussing a poem, first thinking about 
what genre that poem belongs to or movement it belongs to. So for example, if it's, uh, you know, something like Beowulf and a long form narrative, it's going to be an epic. It's going to be something that you have to sit and slowly it builds a story. Whereas something like a haiku, which fits to a very different genre and culture is a much shorter snap, like introspective snap. Another thing is like knowing your movements in poetry can really help. So for example, is the poetry, you know, from the romantics or is it from something like the Harlem Renaissance movement? The first, for the first, for the romantics of the 18th and 19th century, it might look at things like the interior world of the feeling or you'll have a lot of nature imagery and things like that. Whereas something like the Harlem resistance, sorry, Renaissance movement in, um, the early part, early part of the 20th century in, in America is more looking at subverting and challenging the white man's projection of, you know, African-Americans and fighting back against that sort of Victorian principles and shaming and, you know, racism as we know. So knowing your movements can also help. And that, that feeds off obviously also into like historical movements. And the other trick I found, and this was, (laughs) this was quite a, easy step through, but I think quite a clever one was when you're reading a poem, try to identify the title as literally as you can, and then move towards more interpretive meanings as you go, as well as also trying to identify the key situation. And from understanding what the key situation or the key change in the poem is, trying to find the meaning or actions around that. Finally, I've got a few little points from a very funny article. Um, and they, they offer some really great, they offer 20 pieces of advice. Here are some of my favorite. The first one is to dispel the notion that reading poetry is going to dramatically change your life. And they said, this is the first and most important one to remember. The fact that poetry only adds to, you know, your understanding. It's only going to be part of your, your intake, only should be part of your intake. So don't believe that it's going to somehow immediately revolutionize you overnight. It's not the, the silver bullet. It's a, it's a, it's slow a spread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Spread. It only builds up. It's margarine, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the second one I thought was interesting was it said, try to meet a poem on its terms, not yours. If you have to relate to a poem in order to understand it, you aren't reading it sufficiently. Now, this is mm-hmm. a debatable one because obviously whenever we consume art, we try to relate it to something we might understand as a first stepping stone towards building meaning. But I thought it was quite interesting to try and um, put yourself in the position of the poem and, and really, um, oh, what's the word? Sacrifice maybe your own individuality or immediate thoughts in, it, in reading it. Mm. Um, the, <laughs> the final ones, which are kind of more logistical, and I think these are definitely ones to, to keep in the mind, is first off, if you don't know a word, and this is the article, it says, if you don't know a word, look it up or die. <laughs> <laughs> And the second uh, piece of more logistical advice it gives is perform marginalia. So write in the margins of all your poems. So those are some kind of trips and tricks. And with a good, you know, foundational knowledge that we've set up and a working definition, I hope that your discussions, if you have them, Rob, and I'm, I'm planning my own, have this sort of more deconstruction sort of vibe. Well, I, we, we might have to test this on a future, a future tram thoughts, I reckon. We might have to test them on a future tram thoughts. Anyway, with all of that and with that discussion, I will leave you with the words of Dorothy Parker, who is my favourite poet, so I'm sorry you get my selfish choice to end. <laughs> but in her beautiful collection of poems, uh, she has a lovely couplet, and if my heart be scarred and burned, the safer I for all I learned. And I thought that was a good conclusion 
on a share of poems. So we'll now jump into a song by another poet spoken word artist from London. This is Kate Tempest. is lost, America lost, London lost, still we are clamouring victory, all that is meaningless rules, we have learnt nothing from history, the people are dead in their lifetimes, dazed in the shine of the streets, but look how the traffic's still moving, systems too slick to stop working, business is good and there's bands every night in the pubs and there's two for one drinks in the clubs and we scrubbed up well, washed off the work and the stress and now all we want some excess, better yet a night to remember that we'll soon forget all of the blood that was bled for these cities to grow all of the bodies that fell the roots that were dug from the earth so these games could be played i see it tonight in the stains on my hands the buildings are screaming i can't ask for help though nobody knows me hostile worried lonely we move in our packs and these are the rights we were born to working and working so we can be all that we want and dancing the drudgery off but even the drugs have got boring but sex is still good when you get it to sleep, to dream, to keep the dream in reach To each a dream, don't weep, don't sleep Just keep it in, keep sleeping in What am I gonna do to wake up? I feel the cost of it pushing my body Like I push my hands into pockets And softly I walk and I see it This is all we deserve The wrongs of our past have resurfaced Despite all we did to vanquish the traces My very language is tainted With all that we stole to replace it with this I am quiet, feeling the onset of riot Riots are tiny, those systems are huge Traffic keeps moving, proving there's nothing to do Cause it's big business, baby, and its smile is hideous Top-down violence and structural viciousness Your kids are dope Stopping. Medical said it is, but don't worry about that, man. Worry about terrorists. The water level's rising, the water level's rising. The animals, the elephants, the polar bears are dying. Stop crying, stop buying. But what about the oil spill? Shh. No one likes a party pooping, spoil sport. Massacres, massacres, massacres. New shoes. Get a wife's children murdered in broad daylight by those employed to protect them. Live porn stream to your preteen's bedroom. Glass ceiling, no headroom. Half a generation live beneath the red line. Oh, but it's happy hour on the high. Street Friday night at last, lads, my treat all went fine till that kid got lost in the last bar, place went not. you can ask God who it was madness, Low ran red, pure clabber and about them immigrants, I can't stand them, mostly I mind my own business, they're only coming over here to get rich, as a sickness, England, England, patriotism, and you wonder why kids want to die for religion, it goes work all your life for a pittance, maybe you'll make it to manager, pray for a raise, cross the bay's days off on your beach, babe, cannon. The anarchists are desperate for something to smash Scandalous pictures of fashionable rappers in glamorous magazines Who's dating who? Political cash in an envelope Caught sniffing lines off a of prostitute's prosthetic kits Now it's back to the House of Lords with slap wrists They have dead pigs, but him in the hoodie with the couple of splits Jail him, he's the criminal and that was Kate Tempest with her song Europe is Lost. Sorry to, for the abrupt ending. The song does continue on, so definitely flick over to YouTube and check it out. She's an amazing spoken word uh, artist. Coming up, I'd just like to do something a little bit different. So this is a clip I found on Facebook posted by community activist Jake Galamiroa, who you can find on Facebook, and he posted a video basically in protest of uh, mining corporations and the destruction of sacred sites and lands of First Nations people. 
So this is a really important campaign uh, to raise awareness of the damaging of uh, of the damaging impacts of mining, and can be linked to a fundraiser led by Nathan Leslie and Linda Kennedy, who are currently protesting uh, about the irreversible damage to country from mining proposals set up by companies such as Santos Narabi Gas Project in the Pilgara and the Shenhua Watermark Mine Project in the Liverpool Plains. So uh, we'll put that link to that, that, that GoFundMe in the rundown. And this is just a lovely little song called Mother Weeping, which I thought would, uh, yeah, help spread the word. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. None of us is chained. None of us are free.
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yeah, no fuss around is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Okay, so for our next interview, we have an exciting update. The community group King Lake Friends of the Forest have succeeded in their most recent court case, achieving an interlocutory injunction which restricts Vic Forest's operations over the the entire Central Highlands forest area. We've actually been following this story for about a year now. The King Lake Forest uh, is an hour north of Melbourne and has been subject to logging for over um, a year or, or further. This is a central forest which is home to threatened species such as the Leadbeater possum, which is ironically Victoria's faunal emblem. And we have Sue here from the community group King Lake Friends of the Forest, uh, who's been protesting this logging since the beginning. So it's lovely to talk to you today, Sue. Yeah, good to talk to you too. Um, so back in July of 2019, King Lake Friends of the Forest were busy putting themselves in front of loggers to halt progress and really, you know, getting out there on the ground. Could you catch us up with what has been happening over the last year? Okay, so um, logging has continued unabated um, despite community unrest about it, despite logging closer and closer to people's homes, despite scientific evidence saying that uh, the fire threat is increased by logging, and um, and despite the terrible fires of this, this summer. Um, the only thing that the fires of this summer did to logging was move it closer and closer to people's homes um, and um, and make Vic Forest more desperate for the wood that um, that obviously um, they they need for the pulp uh, the paper mill in uh, in uh, Victoria. So um, King Lake Friends of the Forest have continued to um, educate community um, and, and speak about what's happening in the entire Central Highlands. Um, so that includes the King Lake Ranges. Mm-hmm. It includes up near Rubicon, near Eildon, Borbor, um, Borbor Ranges, uh, Borbor Plateau, um, and down to Nugi and Powelltown area. Um, we logging has become more intense in the central highlands um, since the fires. Obviously, Vic Forest have conti- continued to insist on delivering the same amount of wood to the paper mill, despite um, the terrible things that have happened. And um, so, because the area in East Gippsland was burnt, they they can't take wood from there. Um, or they couldn't take wood from there for a while. It is opening up again for them. Um, so the the entire um, supply had to come from the Central Highlands, and we were already being devastated um, by logging, and um, so it became more t- intense here. Um, we would like all logging to stop. Uh, we believe that the science is in. And it needs to stop for reasons of our water security, our carbon storage, 
um, tourism and our wildlife and our general health. Um, you know, we, we need um, forests and places to go to. Um, and for the fire risk reduction. So, um, but there, the, the code of forest practice um, only allows certain clauses to be tried in court. Uh, so um, we have followed this for quite some time and, and understand that the Code of Forest Practice makes it quite clear that logging should not occur um, on the edge of roads and tracks. So we took at least this matter to court. We could also see that because Vic Forests are so desperate for wood and the wood supply is so um, is just going down and down all the time every year, um, that Vic Forests start to log larger areas than they declared in their timber release plan. And that's a public document that was gazetted in government um, in December last year. And um, so we said, well, look, this is a public document. This is what you've declared you will log. We, will not, we, we suggest that it's illegal to log any more than what you've declared. So that's, that was also our allegation. Now, the court accepted that we had a good argument and they, uh, they have now um, put an injunction on Vic Forest and that will, be an in, that will hold Vic Forest from logging um, up until uh, from logging side roads and tracks and it will hold Vic Forest from logging more than what they've declared they will log mm. up until the time of our court case. If we win, then be it. <laughs> And beautiful. So, as you say, this is kind of a temporary, a temporary kind of um, uh, pause, and it's done within the interim of the trial. Yeah. Uh, do we have any idea of when the final trial will be, or is that kind of off in the in the distance? Well, it's a temporary pause, um, not on entire, not on logging entirely. It's only a pause mm. on logging right beside the roads, within twenty meters of the roads, and twenty meters of any tracks. Uh, which is a significant amount of area, mind you. Um, and it also, uh, so it will, that pause on that part of, of logging and, and the pause on logging any more than their declared amount, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're having a hearing on the 17th of August and that will be a timetable hearing. So we'll work out then when, our, when the whole um, question will be tried. I don't know. It'll be sometime after. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the significance of this order really is like, um, I I suppose it's like the recognition that your, your allegations actually do have quite a lot of merit. Um, Do we know whether this injunction has been enforced? Has work been halted on the ground? And I suppose um, what, what do we think this means going forward with the case? Do you think maybe this, this brief, stopping in logging might inspire people to kind of get more on board or or what are we hoping to result out of this? Well, um, I think it's all snowballing since the Friends of Leadbeater Possum Mm -hmm. case. um, That's a federal court case. Friends of Leadbeater Possum versus um, Vic Forest was a federal Mm. court case that continued for three years and the orders were handed, the the, the decision was handed down in... um, uh, I think it was June. March, uh, March or June. June uh, uh, 
a little bit earlier than that. Um, right, I know yes. it was earlier than our court case. Mm-hmm. Um, May, I believe it was in May. That's it. Uh, so that decision uh, went completely for um, Friends of Leadbeater Possum um, and proved that Vic Forrest has been acting illegally mm. in 41, in uh, about 40 coops, 40 forest stands. They have logged illegally and it also uh, proved that um, the, the federal court believes that Vic, logging, Vic Forest logging practices are such that the other, the other forest stands that were included in that, um, that court case um, are predicted to be logged illegally. Mm. So from that and from all the reasons, it's quite clear that um, Vic Forest practices are very questionable mm. on a legal basis. And for that reason, Bunnings have decided not to take any more wood from Vic Frost logging. Um, and so after that, um, a several, two more court cases have, two more grassroots groups mm-hmm. have come up and taken Vic Frost to court. That includes us and Warburton Infants. So that means a total now of five grassroots community groups that have got um, legal case against Vic Forest. Um, I'm so glad you actually brought up that federal court ruling because I think you're right. It sets this really exciting precedent for grassroots to take, you know, to, to, to say, right, it's been proved in the federal court. Let's prove it here in the little states. Um, just speaking from your own experience and from the group's experience, what have you found the, the I suppose, culture and consultation process to be like with Vic Forest and with the Vic government around this? Obviously you've been, you know, <laughs> in this game for quite a while. What Have you had a lot of pushback or could you talk about that kind of culture of resistance that they've set up? Oh, yes. Vic Forest try to uh, refuse to provide the information. Well, they, they provide the minimal information that they have to and you have to beg and plead. Hmm. And in case this, in fact, this backfired quite severely on them. Um, because our court case in June uh, only encompassed uh, an interlocutory, an interim injunction can only work on um, uh, forest stands that are immediately going to be logged. So we uh, had our court case for the the areas for us that Vic Forest had intended to log and said they will log in Mm -hmm. June. And that was only a certain number of stands within the central highlands. Now, it came to July and we said, okay, what is your schedule? What, what do you intend to do for July? Now, Vic Forest intends to tell us what they intended to do for July. So we said, okay, well, if you're not going to tell us, we want an um, injunction on the entire forest central highlands and we want you to not log beside any roads or any tracks on the entire Central Highlands. And the judge agreed with us. Uh, So I must say, um, immediately after the court case, um, Vic Frost must have raced around to every every, um, active um, stand, every active logging operation in the Central Highlands and put blue tape. And they put blue tape on trees uh, 20 metres in from every road and every track. And I 
can tell you it is so satisfying now to go there and and to look at that gap and to look at those trees and, and think, well, you know, logging's still going on, but we have saved so many hectares, mm. so many hectares. Also, straight after the um, the court case, um, Vic Frost had to review maps for areas that they had said, you know, we said we're only going to log 12 hectares here, but we've decided, no, we're going to log 19 hectares. So all these new maps came and they, instead of having 19 hectares to be logged in this area, it's now 12 hectares. So bang, you know, already um, those the seven hectares. And so immediately the number of hectares logged has gone down significantly. Um, and it's evident that, you know, even though their plan was to log only, and it's devastating that I say only, say mm. 40% of a allocated area. They have just changed that to up to 85%. So the, the difference between what they declared they were going to log mm. and what they were actually logging is really big. So, um, you know, this, this um, injunction to stop them logging more than the net, the, the area they declared they were going to log, is also very significant. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's just really satisfying to, to know that at long last after, we have been fighting this for five years. Yeah. Um, the King Lake Friends of the Forest has been uh, going for two years and, um, and nothing has moved them in any way. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's just great to get a, a result at the last. Absolutely. And it sounds like this court case is bringing some much needed transparency. And as you said, there's like a, I'm, I'm so excited to hear that there's five different groups all kind of pursuing this sort of area. And we're starting to see a little bit of traction. Um, obviously 3CR, and we wish you luck for your next court case, but is there anything we can do in the meantime to support you guys? Uh, well, we're um, continuing our, our, our um, role as, you know, sort of informing the community about what's happening in the forest and um, as well as sort of running this case. So it's a sort of a um, lot of work. But um, this Wednesday we're having an information night, just an intro to the logging issue um, at 6 o'clock and we're doing our meetings by Zoom and we're finding them really popular. So people are very welcome to, to join, join in on, on that one. And that was Sue from King Lake Friends of the Forest with that update. Uh, we're now going to jump into a song by British band Idols called A Hymn. We've also had this today, we've also had the specials, A Message to You, Rudy, and Kate Tempest, Europe is Lost. And it, I, I mean, this sort of eclectic collection is what happens when they leave me in charge of music. So my apologies, and I hope you enjoy the next song.
body does I find shame in the crack like corpse on the diverain I wanna be loved Everybody does I find shame in a bad grip type like a withering thing We made it And that just about wraps up our show. We were just listening to Sue from the King Lake Friends of the Forest uh, with her exciting update about succeeding 
uh, an interlocutory, sorry, an interlocutory injunction. I'm going to say that wrong every single time in their most recent court case, uh, which restricts Vic Forest from logging operations in the entire central highlands forest area. Very exciting for Victoria and the future of <laughs> our forests, honestly. Uh, earlier in the show, we had an interview recording from City Limits, so that's the 3CR Urbanism and Cities show, with Dr. Sam Leiblick, a psychiatrist who's been working with public housing tenants, and so he's been representing Friends of Public Housing. And if you want to listen to City Limits, that's actually on at 9 o'clock today. But next up is Stick Together. So we'll say goodbye for now and talk to you next week. See you next week.